3: To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
2: Hi, this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And in this, update. Uh, we have been talking a lot lately about travel and specifically recently re- we released an episode on traveling alone as a woman. And Kristen and Caroline did an episode on this a couple of years ago where they looked into the history of it, kind of where did it start, uh, the, the concern and fear around it, and then there was a golden age of it. Um, so kind of a history bent to Maybe give more context to the modern day stuff that Bridget and I talked about in our recent episode Yes, so we hope you enjoy
4: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen and I'm Caroline and over the past few weeks on the podcast We have been delving into the world of women in exploration and women adventurers who are going all around the world doing all sorts of incredible things and to close out this series Partially because it's summer travel season and partially because it just seems like the right and natural thing to talk about is the issue of women traveling alone, women's wanderlust, what it is like, whether you are a STEM explorer or someone who wants to climb the highest mountain in the world or not, just women leaving their homes to see
0: something they have never seen and doing that alone. It's it's a super big deal to a lot of people for women to be traveling by themselves. Whether we're talking about women today, uh, women in the golden age of exploration, so like the nineteenth century, or whether we're talking about women in fourth in the fourth century,
4: yeah. Uh, Susan Jacoby at the New York Times writes about how women traveling alone has always been looked at a little suspiciously because there are immediately all of these questions raised that essentially repeat over and over again, well, why would a woman want to travel alone? What is wrong with her? And she mentions how in the fourth century, Christian pilgrims were the first, quote unquote, respectable women who traveled alone. And really for a long time, religious pilgrimages and family emergencies were the only situations when it was socially appropriate for a woman to set off on her own without any kind
0: of chaperone or male companion. Yeah, God forbid a woman travels without some sort of male protection because everybody's going to assume whether we're talking about the 4th century or whether we're talking about today, people are going to make some crazy assumptions as far as like her sexuality goes, for instance, people are going to think like, "Ah, oh, she's a loose woman." that uterus is floating about making her crazy or she's just terribly lonely she's oh, either
4: yeah. she's either hypersexual and looking for anonymous sex or she is just desperate and lost in the world, or maybe both.
0: Yeah, and and Jacoby writes about these this, this trope of the solo woman traveler and talks about how even today we have these lingering internalized stereotypes about what it means for a woman to travel unencumbered and unaided by a man or family entourage. And this is something that Sarah Heppola over at Salon echoed. She talks about how a woman traveling alone threatens tradition and propriety. And because women often doubt themselves, we tend to stay towards safe harbors and soft landings, hiding behind the needs and wants of others.
4: And it was really in the mid-19th century, which is considered by some the golden age of female travel, that more and more women, particularly well-heeled women, started to brave away from those safe harbors and soft landings. Landings, and it was partially due to advancements in transportation technology. You have steamships and
0: railroads that made travel more feasible. Yeah, and this allows women to go forth, to explore, to learn, to see the unseen. And therefore, gain some autonomy, break some of those gender norms, that status quo. And this is particularly true, though, and we would be remiss to skip over this. It's particularly true for white middle class women. There's a lot of uh, privilege at play when you talk about exploration, particularly during this era, uh, this era. Because when you look at men, for instance, white upper class men traveling abroad, seeing the empire. They're heroes. They're heroes. And the way they talk about the quote unquote natives is very patronizing. It's very like... And and racist. Very racist as well. But you know what? A lot of women during that time, especially the upper class white women who were traveling the empire as well. I mean, they weren't that far off either. And they... By leaving the gender norms of the modern West, they were able to go into these, you know, so-called uncivilized societies and feel as though they were at the top of some power hierarchy. Yeah,
4: it was interesting that if you read a lot of the the travel, women's travel writings at the time, A, it is usually coming from women who could afford to travel And so you have that element of privilege going on there, and then you have the element of white privilege going on. But you also have this subtext of them starting to question their female status, their gender role in the West because in these other places, due to these elements of privilege, they are higher on the hierarchy than they are at home. And this is something that Aziza Ahmed... Uh, writing for the post-colonial studies department at Emory, talks about saying that the East was seen, and that's capital E East, the East was seen as a place for women to regain power through race, which was lost at home because of gender. And while that is that's not, that's not necessarily something to celebrate because it's obviously like the indigenous people who are being thrown under the bus uh for the sake of a woman uh, finding herself a little bit more
0: mm-hmm.
4: but uh but it's it's an interesting snapshot of the time of how it's sort of the uh the sociocultural element of travel in the mid 19th century when these women were going out in corsets and skirts and heavy clothes and hats and going into these what they would call uncivilized lands.
0: Well, you know, Kristen, you mentioned, so as they go to other lands and travel and see other things, and they, they find themselves on top of this perceived hierarchy, and how that translated into the perception of how they were treated at home. I mean, if we talk about explorers, the way we have defined it so far in this series, explorers being those people who have to go out and they have to find answers. I mean, it's not as if women who did and wanted to research it's not like they were welcomed into explorers groups. So a lot of the time, if you were a woman who had scientific or mathematical or anything leanings, you you kind of did have to pick up and leave and go elsewhere to perform research.
4: Yeah, this was a lot of kind of anthropological research happening under the guise of just being a wealthy woman traveling. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of popular women travel writers at this time, which is, which is a little surprising that... They were so well received, but I guess it was because they were bringing back news of an unknown land. And Mm -hmm. so you have people like Isabella Bird, Lady Mary Wortley Montague and Mary Kingsley, who wrote a lot and made their names in their travel writing, which, again, tended toward objectifying indigenous people and their, quote unquote, savage ways.
0: And talking about these women's writing, um, a lot of the time, and I'm not saying that this applies specifically to the women Kristen just cited, but a lot of the times these women travel writers would sort of maybe embellish a little, maybe make the native peoples seem more savage or uh, sort of outside the norm than they really were. And so these Travel logs attracted a lot of attention and uh, Rachel Friedman over at Bitch cites Lady Helen Dufferin's 1863 satiric lispings from low latitudes, which basically makes fun of this trend of women travel writers and their travel logs. She writes about a trip made by the fictional Impulsia Gushington, who when I first was skimming over this article, I was like, there was a woman named Uh, Impulsia. Okay, I get it. Uh, I did the same thing. I was like, that's the worst name I've... But I get it. Um, But Impulsia sort of stood in as a figure mocking the era's upper-class female travelers in their wide-eyed, sort of naive and shocked observations about the people that they encountered in foreign lands. But it also served to sort of... I don't know. I think it kind of served as a backlash to women having this freedom. Like, how weird are you? You're writing all of this, like, trite stuff about traveling and how you're so special and how they're so shocking. and. But the thing is, Dufferin,
4: A, is a woman writing this satire, and B, was inspired to write about Impulsia, Gushington, which, I don't know why I find that they're very funny. <laughs> Dufferin, you are quite a wit. But it was she was inspired to write this after taking a trip down the Nile, which was a, a very posh thing to do at the time, with her son. Mm-hmm. So she herself, a travel writer, to me it read as what today would be a satire on Eat, Pray, Love.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, essentially saying, oh, here we have another white woman going into a foreign land to find herself.
0: Yeah. If only we could talk to Dufferin.
4: Yeah, if we could get Duffer on the podcast, that could clear some things up for us. right. But there is another book that we found from 1865 called Woman Adventurers, written by Meanie Muriel Downey, in which she profiles, I think it's five women travelers of the day. And she writes, those in our book followed husbands and lovers for love, so they say. How much more might be made of their stories if only they themselves were not the narrators. Basically, she was saying, "Ah, it's just too bad that these women weren't alone traveling because if women are out alone traveling, then, you know, they they realize so much more instead of just following men." Ugh.
0: And that's still the refrain now. Yeah. I mean, absolutely every, you know, when you read uh, travel essays by young women on various websites, various travel magazines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, a lot of them do talk about these personal journeys of discovery, discovery of themselves, discovery of new places. Discovery, perhaps, of a future husband or temporary lover. <laughs> right. But but how rich the experience was for them to go on their own. Yeah. And for that
4: reason, I would say that in the early 21st century, where we are today, that we might be in this golden-er Age of female travel and travel writing because you have more women than ever before traveling alone. Uh, Ann Friedman, for instance, reported in New York Magazine uh, a 2013 poll of travel agents, which found that it's much more common for women to travel alone than men. And 73 percent of the agents they polled noted that more female travelers embark on solo trips than their male counterparts, and the average age of a solo traveler is not the young woman fresh out of college, but a 47-year-old female.
0: Yeah, and usually, uh, you know, something has happened in her life that's pushed her out on this journey, whether it's just a divorce or maybe the death of a loved one or parent. And, I mean, I-, I think those reasons, even if those are things specific to a certain age group, I mean, I think that those major life Changes are what push a lot of people out into the world on a journey of discovery. And that reminds me of uh, reading that bitch
4: article by Rachel Friedman in which she talks to a travel expert who started leading workshops for women travelers. And her main demographic was women in their 40s and 50s who, yeah, had like hit some kind of dramatic point in their life and just felt the need to flee. And I've felt that before. Oh, yeah. Just like, I need to get on a plane and be in a place that looks nothing like my home as soon as humanly possible. And I don't want anyone I know to come with me.
0: Yeah. No, I, um, I after going through a breakup, well, it was actually like a super like triply, doubly traumatic thing of heartbreak for so many Anyway, I ended up hopping in the car and just driving to Charleston, South Carolina by myself and just wandering around and eating all the food and seeing all the sights because I was like, I just don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to be at home. I, you know, I want to go out and think about things for a little while. Well,
4: and people might say, oh, but Caroline, weren't you so lonely eating all of the food by yourself? <laughs> no. No. Yeah, I did a similar thing after a friend of mine died in a very tragic car accident And my knee-jerk reaction was to go to L.A. I'd never been there before, and I went for my birthday. I also prefer to spend my birthdays in places I've never been before because it just makes planning so much easier. And like you, I just wanted to be alone. I didn't want to be around anyone. I wanted to observe and Sort of just be alone with my thoughts, and it felt and it was lonely at times mm-hmm. when you're surrounded by a lot of people, especially I think if you're in more of a touristy area. But it was a good kind of loneliness.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's the thing. I, you know, I um I took a trip. I <laughs> I did study abroad the semester after I graduated college, which is weird. But that summer, I went to England and then after everybody else went back to school i stayed over there by myself for a couple of weeks just traveling and seeing the sights and yeah you get these like pangs especially around mealtime like oh, i wish somebody was sitting across the table from me but it's it's so nice also it's 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 a good feeling it's like pressing on a sore muscle almost that you're like i'm doing something for myself i'm focusing inward I don't know, not to sound too Eat, Pray, Love about it. But speaking, though, of Eat, Pray, Love, one
4: of the reasons why we're seeing more women travel memoirs than ever before, it's become this hugely popular genre, is largely due to 2007's Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. And I read Eat, Pray, Love. Mm Mm-hmm. It might have been because I was also going through a breakup, so reading the book was perfectly timed. But I enjoyed it.
0: Oh yeah, I <laughs> I know it gets a lot of flack, but I, I loved it and I cried. Yeah, I think it. I think
4: it gets a lot of flack from uh, people who don't want who want to distance themselves from anything that even looks or smells like chiclet. Mm-hmm. But uh, Elizabeth Gilbert is a very respectable writer, and while. There are more high-minded books out there. I think I enjoyed it. I've never seen the movie. I heard it was terrible. I, but yeah,
0: I, I've seen parts of it on TV, and it's it's not great. But yeah, I, I think... Um, I don't know. I, I think people need to... Not to get off on a tangent. I think people need to lighten up about the book. It's her journey. It's her story. You can tell yours, too, if you want.
4: Yeah, I will say that I enjoyed Cheryl Strayed's Wild more than Eat, Pray, Love. They're often held up as like the two women travel memoirs, but they're such. They're also so different. Yeah. And written from, like, very different times and places, and Cheryl Strayed goes out and hikes the Pacific Crest Trail, which is far different than eating lots of pasta in Italy.
0: Yeah, and I mean, people forget that women don't all have one voice, although a lot of times if you are a woman travel writer, you're expected to have the voice of other women travel writers, and so often... Women who write these books or these essays are expected to write about their transformation, the the personal journey, the the emotion. And not that that's bad, not that they shouldn't, but it is interesting to see the contrast between what women do write and are expected to write versus what men are expected to write and what they end up publishing.
4: Yeah, I I feel like uh, women's travel memoirs are also expected to spring from a place of extreme heartache and despair. Whereas we can jump right in with a man on a road in the middle of his travels. At least that's what Lavinia Spaulding, who was the editor of the 2011 Best Women's Travel Writing Anthology, reported. Uh, She said, A lot of travel writing by men is focused on what I saw, did, ate, where I went, what goal I accomplished. Whereas with women, it's who I met, what I learned, how I felt, how I changed. And that might be due to men and women maybe traveling different, maybe traveling for different reasons. Um, but it also might be due to editors and publishers sort of pushing women travel writers in that type of way.
0: Well, this, this got me thinking about the travel shows, what types of travel shows I enjoy watching. And, like, I will watch for 30 hours at a time Anthony Bourdain, but um, I cannot stomach Samantha Brown. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, oh, no, am I a woman hater? Am I a self-hater? What's going on? Oh, no. And then I thought, no, no, no. Because I would watch a women a women's travel show, too, if it were led by a woman who was also like Anthony Bourdain. Or like, maybe led by two
4: feminist-minded young podcasters. Huh. Huh.
0: But, like, if you put Janine Garofalo on an airplane and sent her overseas, I would totally watch that. I'm not as interested in what Samantha Brown is selling. You know, but, but does she
4: is it because she has more of a like a gender stereotypical approach? Is that what it is?
0: I don't know what it is. I, maybe she's more touristy and more like, hey, guys, like pack your fanny pack or whatever. Whereas Anthony Bourdain's very much like I'm going to go into this back alley squid shop and I'm going to eat a bunch of squid and then I'm going to go to a bar with the squid shop owner. You know, it's it's very much more of like a. More of an off the beaten path type thing. Well, and that's such a good distinction to bring up between
4: the traveler and the tourist, because yeah. a tourist is what you never want to be, but the traveler is the person that we, you know, they, that you want to sit next to them at a dinner party and hear all of their tales. Whereas a tourist, right. you're going to be like, oh no. Well,
0: also, I I think because we still even today. Uh, there is the danger of falling into that trap of still looking at people in the country you visit as like an exotic other, uh, you know? And so there is that danger of falling into that trap. And I, I, I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but a tourist is more likely to fall into that trap versus someone who is a traveler who is more willing, to, more willing and desirous of jumping into that culture, learning all that they can, not looking at it from like a patriarchal, you're this exotic other i have to to encapsulate somehow and put into a box but i want to join you
4: yeah or i need to come and change your problematic gender norms right. that i that that i feel are like oh, hyper repressive instead a, a traveler would go in and say oh no actually i am going to go hang out with the women and see how they live their lives yeah. and not try to insert myself into uh into their way of life, but rather absorb it and learn about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over six million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Can I rant for a sec? Please.
4: These differences in at least how travel writing by men and women is marketed. straight herself has talked about how male travel stories are often seen as universal, perhaps because of the thing of how they tend to focus on, you know, what I did, saw, ate. Whereas women's, and this goes for writing by women in general, often is pigeonholed as being very particular and only for women um and that's one reason why when she was uh, writing wild she pushed for a gender neutral cover so if you uh you know if you have a copy of wild you'll see that there's a boot on the front she Mm -hmm. was like i wanted i didn't want men on the subway to be embarrassed having my book out reading it
0: yeah a lot of women authors out there travel writers talk about how everybody wants everybody goes to pink first yeah. They're like, let's make a pink cover. One author talks about how, well, I finally succeeded by getting a yellow cover. Another writer, a woman of color, talks about how um, her travel book was, was not even given the broad audience of women. Hers was pigeonholed as African-American studies. And she's like, I'm not some anthropological like study. You're, you know, I, I'm a woman travel writer. Like, What are you talking about? And I'm pretty sure the title of her book
4: is The Black Girl's Guide to Traveling. Which clearly is a travel book, not an African-American studies book. But that also touches on our conversations about you know, women and literature and marketing and all of that. But um, it also leads us to these two major themes that come up with women's solo traveling, where it has to be both transformational and also terrifying.
0: And so that first theme of transformation is one that we've heard a lot about. We've already talked a lot about it, that often a woman's journey that ends up being, whether it's published or whether it's just, you know, a woman who's not a writer going off and traveling, it's often sparked by some emotional moment in her life or something, something like heartache or trauma that sets her off on this journey of self-discovery. And a lot of
4: times, I feel like any women's travel essay that you read The resounding message is to do it because it will transform you. And especially if you do it alone. You have Sarah Heppola at Salon, who we cited earlier, who talks about how she essentially just got in her car and drove around the United States for months alone. And you have Jill Filipovic at The Guardian writing about how uh, I think it was post-breakup. She went to Europe and Friedman, who we cite all the time on the podcast. She's essentially the patron saint of Sminty at this point. Uh, but she similarly talks about how when she was in her early 20s, she went traveling alone and she was nervous at first, but so quickly relieved to be by herself. And so there's that recurring theme over and over and over again of travel forth, young woman, for it will be transformative
0: and also feminist. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Even Toby Israel at Salon talks about female hitchhiking, about how you as a woman, uh, you know, are much more likely to be hit by a car than you are to be killed and raped while hitchhiking. And so she talks about how that was a major, she, she overcame a major hurdle of fear and trepidation when she decided to accept that first, that first hitchhiking offer and how even though there were some bumps along the way, that she was so glad she did it. Yeah, and she ended up traveling more than
4: 37,000 miles hitchhiking through Croatia, Slovenia, Austria, and Germany, which I cannot fathom. I don't know if my bravery extends to the point of hitchhiking. Because whether you're male or female, you know, how many times have we been told since we were wee children to never accept a ride from strangers?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. She She does point out, like we've already said, she does point out that she had this double pronged privilege of being female. So she was not threatening to people who might stop and pick her up. Also, people like couples and grandparents would stop because they felt protective of this young white woman. Out on the side of the road, but also that whole white thing where she uh, enjoys the privilege of being a white female. And so, you know, other drivers don't, you know, feel threatened or whatever. So yeah. she, she points that out that there, it's not the same for everyone. Right. Um,
4: but what does seem to be the same for a lot of solo female travelers, at least according to. A 2002 study out of the University of Florida is that, yes, indeed, setting out on your own is empowering. These researchers talked to a number of women who had traveled on their own, and they found that the women described the experiences as liberating, not terrifying, even though we're often warned over and over again that, oh, if you are a woman traveling alone, you had better watch out. You better put on a ring. Better get a rape whistle. Get two. Get two.
0: <laughs> and keep it in your mouth at all
4: times. Yes, get some bear repellent because it is a grisly world out there.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think, it's, I think it's funny that they even studied this. Well, yeah. I mean, and they found,
4: too, that after traveling alone, these women still prefer traveling alone because it gave them more opportunities to make new friends. Mm-hmm. Because uh, when I went, for instance, uh, I went on study abroad, in college with one of my best friends, still one of my best friends. And we had so much fun together and we made lots of memories. But there were also times that I know and like recognized as it was happening that we were kind of so caught up in like our own friendship with like doing things together that we weren't mm-hmm. making really friends outside of ourselves, which yeah. could have been cool. There, I mean, we ended up doing that more once we had been there for a little bit. Um, but I think there there can be some missed opportunities.
0: Yeah, like I um, when I was by myself over in England and Ireland, I lost my luggage. Oh, I didn't lose the luggage; the airline lost the luggage. And so I get to Ireland after being awake for thirty six hours, and I'm feeling a little. Down in the dumps because I don't have any underwear, you know, like I have nothing and I'm by myself and it's raining because it's Ireland. And I'm just like, oh God. So, anyway, I'm walking up to Trinity College in Dublin and who should I see but this girl that I did study abroad with? And I was like, oh, oh, you stayed too. Hello. Can we be best friends for the next couple of hours? And so. She and I um, went all over the city. We saw a bunch of things together. We ate together. We talked to a bunch of, like, the local restaurant owners and got into a bunch of great conversations. We eventually uh, went our separate ways. But it was great to have that experience of kind of enjoying a foreign country and a new city with someone so you could rely on that That extra presence, but then taking your own way and then diving deeper into all of these things you want to learn more about. Yeah, I've never traveled
4: abroad by myself. I've gone
0: places in the US, but
4: usually I have some point of contact, whether I'm staying with a friend or, you know, somebody to call, someone to meet up with, because there comes that point of the free time The after the sun sets (laughs) and is it safe to go out? Where do you go and eat alone? Yeah. It can be, I mean, it can be kind of nerve wracking.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that leads us into the next major theme of anyone discussing women traveling alone, which is danger, danger. You've got to wear all those rape whistles. Don't go out after dark. Certainly don't go to clubs like watch your back. Don't stay on the first floor of a hotel. And while there is merit to a lot of the travel advice, I mean, certainly don't be stupid, but you don't want to do stupid things at home either.
4: Yeah. I mean, when you look at the statistics of how dangerous travel for women actually is compared to how much we hear about how what what a terrible idea, essentially it is, mm-hmm. because we're just like putting ourselves at risk for the worst possible things to happen to us. Apparently, there's such a vast gulf between the reality of traveling alone and what we are warned about traveling alone. And that's one reason that women are likelier to plan like to overplan, excuse me, their itinerary because we are so nervous about that free time because everyone's mm-hmm. been telling us that we're going to be murdered
0: and or raped well i don't know i mean i think i mean not to totally go off on a tangent but i i think that having that free time is so awesome that unplanned free time is so awesome just as long as you are smart about it and you're paying attention to your surroundings
4: well and i have a feeling too that you know yes be smart about it um but i also feel like there there's this undercurrent of Victim blaming in regard to the worst case scenario of being murdered and or raped, which has happened. And I'm not trying to make light of that, Um, but whenever the worst case scenario happens, the blame is immediately focused on the solo female traveler of, well, why was she out there? alone to begin with
0: right and alice driver at the feminist wire says that basically by repeating these stories over and over again and telling women not to go out by themselves we are limiting their movement and i would say that by then limiting women's movement making them too afraid to go out in the dark by themselves ever we're also not allowing that to become normalized we're not allowing the image of a woman at a cafe at night or at a club, or wherever she is at night by herself, we're not allowing that to become normalized.
4: Well, and then there's also this deeper level, too, as the New York Times talked about, um, of how if and when a white female traveler in particular, if something happens to her, it's often amplified by the media, which makes... Individual incidents seem like part of a larger pattern. Um, And Christina Finch, who's the director of Amnesty International's women's human rights program, told the New York Times, on average, attacks against white women worldwide receive more coverage than attacks against women of color. And then on top of that, you also have um, the response to violence against Western tourists being met with a much faster response than violence against local women.
0: Right. And then that leads us, of course, to the story of Sarai Sierra, who in 2013 was murdered while traveling alone in Turkey. And so there's a lot of hand-wringing around this, I mean, admittedly horrific story about, like, why was she even alone in the first place? What was she possibly thinking? When in reality, like, and, and it got a very fast and strong police response in Turkey, But this was a guy, this was like a crazy homeless man who tried to kiss her and she fought back and then she threw a rock at him and he bashed her head in with a rock, basically. And so, I mean, this is something that could have happened to any woman, but it happened to take place as violence against an American woman traveling by herself. And people
4: seemed so outraged, particularly
0: at her
4: for traveling because she not only was a woman traveling alone, but she was also married Mm -hmm. and people, some people were like, well, why wasn't your husband with you? Why weren't you? Are you one of those going back to that early trope, that mistrust of the woman traveling alone? She must've just been out trying to cheat on her husband. Why was she even talking to a man in the first place? It's so victim blaming. Yeah. But more level headed responses to that admittedly horrific incident is the fact that, When you look at things like domestic violence rates, murder rates and sexual assault rates in the U.S., a lot of times there is a statistically greater chance of the worst case scenario happening at home rather than abroad. So in Sierra's case, for instance, according to data collected by the U.S. State Department, which keeps tabs on violence against American tourists, it found that there had been three murders of U.S. tourists in Turkey, and I think it was either a five- or ten-year-long period. And Sierra was a New Yorker, which meant that in 2011 alone, there were 502 murders. So statistically speaking, in a way, she
0: was actually safer in Turkey than she was in New York City. Right. And when we look over to Dysan McLean, who's the former New York Times frugal traveler columnist, she talks about how she has actually felt safest in Countries that tend to have a more patriarchal or repressive society because those cultures tend to have lower crime rates and the local women tend to be more protective of traveling women, particularly those women that they see traveling by themselves. Now, obviously, in those kinds of societies,
4: women travelers need to pay attention to the clothes that they're wearing. They need to be respectful of the local customs and right. not just try to bulldoze in and say, free the nipples. I'm just going to come in here and change everything. Um, and when you are being a respectful traveler, tourist, whatever you want to call it, yeah, it, it, a lot of women travelers talk about how local women reach out to them and you know try to kind of give them help along the way. And this is not to say... Thumbs up to super repressive patriarchal societies, but rather to re-examine, okay, how realistic is this overwhelming fear of women traveling alone? Is this rooted in reality or rooted in our fears about women traveling alone? Because I think one of the biggest fears, um, and, and I've felt this fear before as well, of traveling alone is the risk of sexual assault. We made a joke about rape whistles, but I think that, you know, putting yourself out in the world in a in an unknown place does can, can make you feel very vulnerable. But again, when you look at the statistics, leaving your home doesn't necessarily make you less safe or more at risk for sexual assault. So for instance, um, there isn't hard data on all sexual assaults reported by female travelers, but the New York Times reports that from 2012 to 2013, 310 British travelers requested consular assistance after alleged sexual attacks. For comparison, the Rape Crisis England and Wales Center estimates that 85,000 women are raped in those countries every year. So, yet again, what are we so afraid of? Is it reality or is it just our concerns about the general vulnerability of women being out on their own?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I do think it says a lot about how society or societies view women and how they move through those societies. Well, and it could be because it's
4: that fear and the warning that we shouldn't do that. And then if something happens, we are the ones to blame. Yeah, It's a bit rape culture-y when you think about it.
0: And, you know, we've, we've already said that there are situations where, whether you're at home or abroad, honestly, you know, you just want to be smart and be aware. And so there are some tips to keep in mind when you are traveling by yourself. Um, one that Jody Edinburgh at Legal Nomad brings up is that it's a balance that you have to strike between thinking smart and trying to stay safe, And also not succumbing to the fear. She recommends carrying a rubber doorstop to use in your hotel room, a safety whistle, staying in well-lit areas, watching your drink, which is just good advice for life. Dress conservatively. This is a common refrain that we hear on a lot of travel tip blogs. Uh, Don't give away details about where you're staying to strangers. Be careful with your eye contact and maybe opt for wearing sunglasses. There's the example that one blog gave of being in, like, Northern Europe versus Southern Europe. And if you're in Italy, there's the whole thing about eye contact and a smile being considered an invitation to engage. And that maybe if you're not looking to engage in conversation, put on some some big old sunglasses. Should you wear your sunglasses at night, like the song goes? Totally. And going back to that
4: University of Florida study that we talked about earlier, uh, some of the tips from the veteran women travelers who were involved with that, talked about how important it was to really know where you're going in the sense of knowing the country, knowing the culture. And on top of that, uh, and this is stressed over and over and over again, particularly for women traveling alone, to select accommodations in safer parts of town. Uh, You might want to spend more money on going to, say, a name brand hotel rather than staying at a hostel off the beaten path that might not have 24-hour security um, and I think those are one of the things where it's not so much fear mongering, but that's just a basic safety measure. But
0: I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Because like what, I mean, I was a college student who didn't have the money to stay in a hotel. I mean, <laughs> you know, so I, I picked hostels instead, stayed with strangers, slept in a room in, uh, on the West coast of Ireland with like 20 other people. One of whom was a ginormous man on the bunk below me who snored all, night but when you're like like a terrible level of tired you can sleep through it I assure you but um no but I hate that advice that you need to stay in a nicer hotel because that is incredibly limiting
4: well that's one thing that uh, this came up actually in the New York Times frugal traveler column which is written right now by a guy and he gets a lot of responses from people saying we really need to hear from women there had been I think two or three women before him who uh, were at the helm of the column And, you know, he hears from people saying, like, well, sure, you can go and live on a dime because you're a guy and you can travel anywhere. And that might be more of a challenge for a woman who really wants to be as... uh, take as many precautions, I should say, as possible. I don't want to say as safe as possible because I feel like that also still feeds into this whole, like, you know, threatening message that women get who want to travel on their own. But if you want to take as many precautions as possible... Staying at the nicer spot in a well-lit area Mm -hmm. is a big one.
0: Yeah. Just prepare yourself. Some hostels like have dance parties all night. I'm just going to warn you about that. And on top of that,
4: there is an even more depressingly common piece of advice, which is to wear a wedding ring, real or fake. And even as... Uh, Travel expert Rick Steves suggested, carry a picture of a real or fake husband. (laughs) And I feel so conflicted about this one, particularly going to the, the extent of carrying a photo of a husband because it's yet another example of whether you are abroad or if you are at a bar down the street where if someone is giving you unwanted sexual attention, the quickest way to stop it is to not say... No thanks, not interested. But to rather say, I have a boyfriend, I have a husband. Even if you were to say and it is the truth, oh I have a girlfriend, won't stop it. You got to say I have a boyfriend. You need to show the presence of another male in your life. And I want to hear from listeners on that one because like I like the feminist inside of me wants to fight that one so much.
0: But, I mean, like we said earlier, we can't go into other societies, other cultures, you know, determined to change the way things are, because we're just not. Yeah, it's not our job to
4: go and fight the patriarchy.
0: Right, and so it stinks, but if you want to avoid hassle, you got to wear your sunglasses, and maybe you got to wear a wedding ring. Well, and I could
4: see, okay, I could see if I was traveling alone, and particularly if I wanted to go out at night, then putting on the wedding ring, because I feel like that's when it, you know, the the fear probably creeps in the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you wanted to go have a nice dinner, have a drink at a bar, maybe it would just kind of, you know, it serve as like put a radar shield around you. Um,
0: but I mean, I think too, that just depends on what country you're traveling in, what type of culture you're traveling in. When I was traveling, I had zip zero problems with people harassing me the only time i was harassed is when i had been up for 36 hours or so in dublin and some guys were hassling me about taking up an entire booth in a pub by myself like listen i'm sorry that i'm not really caring about etiquette right now as far as where i sit i'm just so tired but no they weren't there was no sexual advances there so that's good yeah you because look you are yet another
4: one of the women who have traveled alone and come back to tell the tale that it is
0: okay out there in the world. It's awesome. It's, I, I enjoyed, I super enjoyed traveling by myself.
4: Well, and there are also advantages of being a solo female traveler. I feel like a lot of times the conversation stops at the fear factor, but there are plenty of advantages such as first and foremost, being able to see the world on your own terms and your own schedule. You could sit in that booth at the pub in Ireland as long as you wanted, Caroline. Well, until those guys. Like. Until they
0: until they were <laughs> complaining too loudly. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then there's the whole thing about women tending to get invited to people's homes more often and maybe being more protected by locals. I uh, This is absolutely something that I experienced when I was on the west coast of Ireland. I wandered into this pub and I didn't have any cash, but they had a 25 euro credit card minimum. Like, ugh, just kill me, right? So I was like, okay, give me all the fish and chips, and as much Guinness as I can swallow. So I'm sitting there, and I'm like stuffed to the gills, and I'm drunk because I've been drinking all this Guinness. And I walk up to the, the bar, and I'm like, have I reached the minimum yet? And this couple next to me hears my accent, and they start talking to me, and they it turns out they are a couple from New Jersey who quit the rat race. Their kids were done with school. They quit the rat race, moved to the west coast of Ireland in this tiny town of, of Doolin, opened a stained glass shop and lived above it and they were so sad to hear my story about losing my luggage and that all I wanted to do was take a hot shower after a day of traveling that they were like, "Well, wait here." And the wife ran back to the the house and got me a towel so that I could shower that night. And we just sat there at the bar and talked. Turns out their son, I don't know if he still is, but was a police officer from around where I am from in Georgia. so Small Small world. Very small world. But I think there is something to be said for being a woman, traveling by yourself, being open to those experiences. I think it's important to not shut yourself off, but to look and feel open to talking to strangers. Absolutely. Because you never know who you're going to meet in a good way.
4: In a (laughs) a good way. Yeah. Um, One tip that was brought up by traveler Emily Barron talking to... The New York Times frugal traveler was that one other advantage you might not think about of being a woman traveling alone is that you are likelier to have a tampon Mm -hmm. on you. And she talks about how tampons can serve as the, you know, build the bridge between you and local women because, I mean, we've all been there. Mm -hmm. If you are in a situation where your period came, you don't have a tampon, and the woman who has one and hands it to you, it's almost as if you can hear the angels (laughs) sing, like, oh, and you're bonded immediately.
0: And also, if you break your nose, you can shove one up your nose, too.
4: Yeah, there are all sorts of survival uses for tampons. If you don't believe me, Google it. It's true. So, I mean, and guys, obviously, you can carry tampons, too. It's just, you know, it might be, if a guy hands a woman, a tampon a local woman a tampon i don't know if it would necessarily be a bridge builder in the same way as if you or i were to hand her one that might halt the conversation Yeah, yeah yeah it could a little bit um and then on top of all of it the advantages obviously are just the confidence building the personal transformation that we hear about so often you can go you can eat you can pray you can love if that's what you so desire (laughs)
0: That was my mom telling me about that. Yeah, I, I absolutely, I absolutely encourage people to do it. And there's plenty of resources out there for you to learn about traveling, whether you're traveling solo with a friend, whoever, if you want to go do this as a lady explorer.
4: Yeah, there are so many women focused travel sites and travel magazines. Caroline, didn't we
0: read that women traveling is so hot right now? Yeah, Consumer Affairs quoted uh, someone as saying that it's the new trend in travel, to which I said, (laughs) wrong. But, yeah, it's good to see that that more people are actually paying attention to this this section of the population. Yeah, apparently that woman had
4: never heard of Impulsia Gushington.
0: That's right. You know. But, yeah, there are all sorts
4: of websites out there for women-specific travel tips, such as Women's Adventure Magazine. There's Wanderlust and Lipstick, which... I know the name might sound a little hokey, but it's actually a really good resource. There's Black Girl Travel. There's also You Go Girl, which is from the author of the Black Woman's Book of Travel and Adventure and women on the road, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, really, it's all just a Google search away.
0: And what's so encouraging, I think about it, is that when you Google, like, these types of resources for women, there's so many different kinds. There is stuff that's on the the girl group side, so you're going with a lot of women, it's the journey of self-discovery, all the way to, like, the rustic strikeout on your own to climb that mountain. So there's there's just everything in between, and I, I like how people, whether you're a woman entrepreneur starting a group like this or whatever, I like that the fact that women are different is being recognized.
4: Yeah. Yeah. We want different things and we enjoy different things. And that's fantastic. And I just love though, I've honestly really enjoyed just sitting here listening to your travel stories that I've never (laughs) heard before. And I love hearing and reading other women's travel stories as well, because Not to sound cheesy, but they're very inspiring, Yeah, you know, because it can be I've been fearful before about hopping on a plane and going to the other side of the world. Probably why I've never done it alone before. But I tell you what, Caroline, after this podcast, I am ready to go somewhere do it my boyfriend might be like hey whoa, where are you going
0: (laughs) you and i should just go and then we'll just split off and come back together at the end of it yeah
4: yeah and then then swap our swap our stories but now we want to hear your stories and not just women any solo traveling adventures and photos we would love to read and to see so please send us all of them momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address you can also tweet us places you've been pictures at Mom Stuff Podcast, You can also message us on Facebook. And we have a couple messages to share about our episode on World War II and Rosie the Riveters.
1: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
2: This episode is brought to you by PNC
3: Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. To start planning your trip, visit TNVacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
4: So, Caroline, I have one here from Megan, who writes, My maternal grandpa dropped out of high school in 1942 and fibbed about his age to enlist in the Marines. While on leave in late 44 or early 45, he married my grandmother, who was 16 at the time and not working due to her age. She did take part in scrap metal drives and gardened extensively. She became pregnant pretty much right away and didn't work until the early 1950s. However, her older sister, my great-aunt, did work. My family is from East Tennessee, and my aunt Vernell worked on the Manhattan Project. Whoa! Whoa! That's so cool. Workers in Oak Ridge were not permitted to tell friends and family that they worked for what they were doing. Maryville, where my family lives, and Oak Ridge are some 30 miles apart, and it's possible my family wasn't aware that the secret city existed. My aunt has told me that none of the workers, including her, had any idea they were building bombs. Each line of production was subdivided and kept hidden from the other lines. And when the war ended, she married her soldier boyfriend, had a couple of kids, worked as a hospital nurse, and collects a pension from the government for her help in aiding the war effort. Their oldest sister was a war nurse and has unfortunately passed away. I know I've heard some of her stories, but at the time I was too young to realize the significance of what I was hearing. Whoa. Yeah. So thanks so much, Megan, for
0: sharing those stories. Aunt Vernell. Well, I have one here from Laura. She says, My great aunt, who I used to love to visit, worked during World War II in a more unusual setting. She was in the Air Force and stationed for at least part of the time in Hawaii, where she drew maps of enemy territory from descriptions given to her by pilots. She was quote-unquote older, being in her mid-20s at the time. So I got the impression that she had a higher rank than the young men she was stationed with. I believe it was during this time she interacted with some of the higher-up people, including Winston Churchill, as they needed to view her work. Also, from what I understand, you can see some of her work today at the Smithsonian. Her name is Mary Taylor Heiss. That's H-I-S-E. So, thank you, Laura. I am so blown away by our cool listeners and their really cool grandmothers. And great aunts. And great aunts, yes. Yes. Well, if you have cool stories about your
4: Rosie the Riveter grandmother, great aunt, or travel stories, we want to hear all of them. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can email us. And for links to all of our social medias, as well as all of our blogs, podcasts, and videos, to perhaps keep you entertained on your travels and beyond, there's one place to go, and it's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some
3: things in life should be boring, like banking.